morning, Mill City. All right, 11 o'clock. Good morning, Mill City. There we go. You guys should be the most caffeinated, sleep undeprived, you know. Uh, well, welcome and welcome everybody online. We're so glad that you're gathering with us. If you are brand new in either space, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And I have a couple of things I wanted to cover before we jump into the message. Uh, we are in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting, and, uh, which means that throughout these first three weeks of the year, we have a prayer gathering every weekday. So this last week, it was 8.30, excuse me, 6.30, some of you wished that, 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Uh, this next week, it will be noon to 1, and then the following week, it will be 5 to 6. That's every weekday. Uh, and then uh, lastly on that is that we normally have a finale to kind of uh, kick off the rest of the year as well as close out 21 days. And it's usually on a Saturday morning, but we have some scheduling conflicts with here in this building. And so it'll be Friday night, uh, January 19th. So whether you've come to one, none, or all of the prayer gatherings, I want to encourage you to be at that finale. We want to end strong and, and uh, really send into the year uh, together with a bang. So hope that you can make it. Kids are welcome at the finale and every other gathering, and, um, and it's just such a wonderful time to engage and reset for the year. So um, uh, hope that you can make it. And then secondly, uh, in December, we have Generosity Sunday, and uh, we'll be announcing the total of what was given and where it's going uh, here next Sunday. So uh, keep your ears open for that. So J July 29th, 1995. Uh, some of you weren't born yet, uh, but for those who were, does anybody remember where you were? I do. I was walking down an aisle with Jossie, was brown at the time. And, and, and it was a magical, wonderful day. Hundreds of family members and friends and, and so special and the culmination of uh, a few years of dating. And, and, and of course, we stood across from one another, held each other's hands and looked into each other's eyes and committed our lives to one another and exchanged rings and kissed. And then we signed a marriage license. And on that day, I became a husband. Now, it would be foolish of me to think that because I became a husband on that day that I am a great husband, that I didn't need to grow into becoming a husband or a better husband. I think we have a, a problem in the Western church today, and that is that we have believed that we can be a Christian without being a disciple without being an apprentice to Jesus, that we see salvation as transaction rather than salvation as life transformation, that somehow it might be a check the box and then I'm done, rather than it's only the beginning of a journey. One of the ways that we experience this lifelong transformation or spiritual formation is through engaging with spiritual practices, or some of you might know them termed as spiritual disciplines. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine, now, he has just given a lot of words of his. He has talked about forgiving. He has talked about uh, not, not 
trying to take the speck out of somebody's eye while still having a log in your own and not judging. He's talked about, uh, about prayer and he's talked about fasting and he's talked about uh, not worrying and he's talked about loving your enemies and he's talked about, uh, uh, he's talked about nonviolence and all many, many, many things that I don't find natural. But I hear the words of Jesus and I want to do them. Or I'd like those to be true about me. But he says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. That foundation, in this case, is hearing the teachings of Jesus and putting them into practice. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus is contrasting wise and foolish followers, those that would hear the teachings of Jesus and then not do them, and those who would hear them and put them into practice, embody them. What Jesus is also saying here is teaching alone is not enough, no matter how good it is. That we need to have a journey of biblical information, yes, but continue on it and through that to Christ-like formation. That, that it is not just about knowing things, it's about living things. And so our word for the year, we always pick a word for uh, the year for Mill City Church to kind of give us some framework and some direction for the year is the same word that we had in 2023, and that is the word practice. Now, the first two gatherings cheered, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that you are expressing your cheering in your heart. And the reason is, is because, one, I think it's, it's probably a lifelong word for all of us, hopefully. But in many ways, um, it's, it's something that we want to really continue to integrate into the life of our church, as well as um, I started with, and it, last year I had, uh, we, we went through several different uh, practice series, practice uh, generosity, practice community, practice scripture, practice slowing. And there's several more that we want to go through to round those out this year. And, um, and so we'll continue in that this way. And the reason that we need to embrace a life of practice is because, as James K.A. Smith said, you can't think your way to Christ-likeness. I really wish that we could. I really wish that I, when I read the, the words of Jesus that I would say, oh, yes, I, I, I don't want to worry, and I would stop worrying, or you'd stop being anxious, or you'd stop judging. But we are not brains with legs. We are more than a brain. We do have a brain, but we have a body, and we have a soul, and we have a spirit. And God encourages us, Jesus encourages us to love God with our body, soul, mind, and spirit, every aspect of who we are. And it will take an integration of what we know in our heads or hear through and receive into our brains, but that has to be transferred into our hearts and into our bodies so that we might live out the teachings of Jesus. And spiritual practices enable us to do that. Spiritual practices, Adele Calhoun says, don't give us spiritual brownie points or help us work the system for a passing grade with God. 
They simply put us in a place where we can begin to notice God and respond to His Word to us. They place us in the way of God, open our hearts towards Him so that He, by the power of His Holy Spirit, can do a transforming work in us. Now, practices are not virtues. In other words, somehow the things that make us or identify us, they are actually means to an end, right? You can, you can read Scripture and still be judgmental. You can fast and still be a slave to your appetites. You can give or tithe and you can still be ruled by greed. But if we see those as formational means to an end to be more like Jesus, they will help facilitate the undoing of some of those. Now, technically, any habit that we see in the life or teachings of Jesus is a spiritual practice. If you're wondering, like, what are they? Well, then, if we look at the life of Jesus, it's anything that He does. And there's loads of wonderful books on, on different types of practices, and we will not cover them all. But Jesus fed the hungry. Jesus told weird stories. Jesus ate with people far from God. He forgave and loved his enemies. He took naps. Amen. I'm going to take a holy nap this afternoon. He defended the vulnerable. He wept with the hurting. At one point in his ministry, and his disciples who followed him around and saw all of these things and more, asked him at one point, Jesus, will you teach us to pray? Now, what's interesting about that is he doesn't say, teach us how to tell one of those weird stories, a parable. He doesn't say, they don't say, Jesus, teach us how to heal. Teach us how to walk on water. Teach us how to preach. He said, they say, They ask, will you teach us how to pray? Which means that the way that Jesus prayed must have been unique. They grew up around prayer. They were were in a Jewish community. They would have been around it, been taught it, learned it, seen it. And so here they're saying to Jesus, teach us to pray. Because I think they saw something in the way that he interacted and prayed that was different than what they were used to and very unique. And so today, we're starting a series called Practice Prayer. We'll be carrying this for the next few weeks. And to start, I want to share some ideas that have revolutionized my prayer life in the last decade or so, and I believe are foundational uh, for a life of prayer, and especially a sustaining life of prayer. I grew up in a home where my mom, and still is, a prayer warrior. I remember when I was young, on Saturdays or during the summer when I wasn't in school, uh, my mom, I would hear noise from my mom's bedroom and she would be praying. And sometimes she'd get loud, she'd clap and she'd yell and I'd be like, wow, something is going on in there. And I went to a youth group um, led by Chris Hodges, one of our overseers. And he had this thing on Tuesday nights called Prayer Warriors. And it was, it was an invitation for any teenager to come and pray with him for Wednesday night for the youth gathering the next day. And so I would go um, every Tuesday night. There would be about 20 to 40 uh, students every week, and we'd 
pace around, walk around his house and pray, and I'd watch him pray, and, and he'd teach us how to pray, and, 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 and we'd gather together and pray together. And so I was around that, praying for the next day. And I was in a church where I learned how to pray and fast, learned about fasting. And, and our church would oftentimes do prayer walks or encourage prayer walks around your office or around your school or around your, an area of town. And they even sent teams to other countries to prayer walk. So I have grown up around prayer, and I'm so grateful for the culture and environment and normal, normalcy of prayer in my life. So much of this prayer was asking and contending and travailing, and I think that's so important. But I spent some time just praying the Lord's Prayer several years ago, and the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer transformed everything about the way that I understand prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, in response to his disciples asking, teach us how to pray, he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. He references God as Father. So many of the ways that I believe that the disciples had seen other people pray was towards a judgmental or a God that's keeping track. The Pharisees, who would have been the religious teachers of the day, felt like we have to do this exactly right. And things became a performance. Things became about, and they became legalistic. And so they're seeing this freedom and this way in which Jesus is interacting. It has to do with this first phrase, our Father. See, because what I realized and what I've come to love and know is that prayer is relational before it's functional. It is functional. We do ask. We should contend. We should travail. There, we go a couple of lines longer into the Lord's Prayer, and it is, give us today our daily bread. That is an ask. We see David in the Psalms asking, defend me from my enemies. Protect me from this. And so there's all these different asks. We see it. So, but the posture from which we ask can make all the difference. Jossie and I, of course, have four boys, and, you know, we didn't have two and think, you know, we could use some help doing the dishes. Let's have another kid. Now, do they help around the house? Of course, most of the time. But that's not why we had them, and it's not the, the reason and the basis for our relationship. It's time together. It's love. It's interaction. It's encouraging, empowering, and it's such a delight to be together. And God wants us to view prayer in the same way. I love how Tyler Staten puts it in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Prayer is about presence before it's about anything else. About being with God being relational with him. A few years ago, I found myself kind of irritated with Jossie and the fact that she would pray for like a, a parking space. I'm like, does God really care? Or praying for, you know, kind of, uh, you know, something to happen at school or a package to arrive earlier than it's supposed to or, or something. And I'm like, oh, it seems so trivial. 
But of course, at the same time, then she's also praying for somebody who's been diagnosed with something, and she's praying with somebody who's, who's experiencing heaviness and loss. And, 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 I, and then I realized something. I realized she prays about everything because she's just in relationship and talking to God. So, so she's going to talk to him about the cancer and she's going to talk to him about the loss. She's going to talk to him about the parking space and she's going to talk to him about the package. And she's going to, and it's just, so it was a relational dynamic, not a, God give me all this so that my life is easy and I don't have to walk as far in the parking lot. She's just relationally interacting with God. Shame on me for being irritated. And as I've realized how relational, and God wants us to be relational with Him, and He is relational with us. As I've cultivated that in my own life, I spend time with God uh, in the morning, and in that time, if, I, if there's ever a day that I kind of miss that time, I don't find myself thinking, oh, I missed, I should have prayed today. It's actually like, oh, I missed, I missed that time with God. I missed God today. Now, of course, he's all around, but it's like this concentrated distraction, as much as possible, distraction-free moment, space. It's like me and him, and it's just a relational missing rather than a I missed a should. Now, too often we think about God's presence and him being with us in the good times and sometimes find it hard to understand or believe that He's with us in the difficult times, or maybe the excruciating times. David Benner, spiritual director and author, wrote, the God who is Emmanuel is equally in those moments we would never choose as in those we would always choose. Because God, our omnipresent God, who is everywhere, except for one place. The one place he is not is illusion. He only dwells in reality. So he doesn't dwell where you pretend to be. He doesn't dwell where you hope or think you should be. He doesn't dwell where you fantasize about what it should look like. But he is very near in reality. That's why in Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, it says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. That became exceptionally real to Jossie and I when we lost our little girl to stillbirth several years ago because it was so excruciating. It was, uh, it, the, the pain and the reality of it felt unbearable. But it was so loud and so in our face that we could not ignore it. You can't like put on a smiley face and just be like, yeah, everything's great. And so what it did was suffering pulls you into reality. And because you're so engaged with reality, I believe God's presence is so near. God is near to the broken hearted. Which means that the goal in our time with God is to be honest. Because honesty about where we really are connects us to the presence of God. In the book of Job, right in the middle of the Bible, it looks like Job. It starts off with Job experiencing these horrible, horrible things. He loses his livestock, he loses his kids, his, uh, the house gets destroyed, and then he gets sores and 
all over his body. He's in pain. He's grieving. He's a mess. The most of the book from there, it's over 40 chapters long, is about interactions with him and his friends. And his friends are like, what did you do? You must have done something that caused this to be your punishment for somehow dishonoring God. And he's like, that's God. I don't, I didn't do anything. What am I, what have I done? And, and it's these interactions and these friends trying to kind of think about and philosophize about God and what's happening. And, and then God responds. And he responds to Job. And after responding to Job, he rebukes Job's friends. And he rebukes Job's friends because they were talking about him. And he praises Job because Job talked to him. See, God, and there are some pretty intense things that Job says, but God welcomes the honesty. He welcomes the reality. And then God says, and now you know me firsthand. You don't know me based on what other people say. You don't know me what, based on what Pastor Aaron says. You don't know me based on what your city group leader says. You don't know me on what your parents say. You know me firsthand. Why? Because you just were honest and you brought everything. You were right there with me. We were in relationship. Here it is. Here I am. Here's what I've got. And when we experience God's presence, we become agents of the presence of God. I wonder how many of us in this room would say, yes, I could really use some more of God's presence in my workplace. How many of you would say, I'd really love more of God's presence in my dorm room or in my home, my neighborhood? The invitation is for us to be honestly relational with God so that we become greater carriers of the presence of God wherever we go. The second thing that was huge for me was to understand and come around the reality that God's predisposition towards you is delight. That is the way that he looks at you. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan and comes up from the water, and it says, a voice came from heaven, and it's God. It says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, sometimes we read the Bible just like emotionless, or sometimes we maybe imagine this as like God up in heaven and deep, booming voice. You are my son whom I am well. I love him. I really do. And I'm well pleased. I actually think that God's like, that's my boy, right there. That's my boy, that's my boy. Oh, that's my, just bubbling over and oozing love. I, I love him, I'm so proud of him. Oh, my boy. And Jesus hadn't done anything yet. Sometimes we think we get that when, when we do something great. And maybe your earthly father or mother communicated that, like the praise came when you succeeded. But God is crazy about you, even on your worst day. I love to say to my boys, I am crazy about you. I can't get enough of you. And that includes your best day, and that includes your worst day. And if God is my father, and if God is your father, because as we are welcomed into the family of God, we become sons and daughters of God, then what he says about his son is true about you and me. 
that he looks at you and he looks at me and he looks over the balcony of heaven and he's like, that's my girl. That's my girl. That's my boy. Love you. His predisposition towards you is delight. Now, for some of you, that might be a hard pill to swallow. Not because you don't want that to be true, but because you have never experienced a father in that way. You have experienced an if-then father. Kind of a, a father that's like, if you do well, then I will love you. If you succeed, if you look this particular way, then I will love you. Or maybe it's a finger wagging, or maybe it was an absent father. Like, not even delight, just gone. Whatever your understanding of an earthly father, God is not a representation of your earthly father. He is a perfect father. And he delights in you. He can't get enough of you. Even on your worst day. Jesus, later in the book of John, says and prays to God, and he says, God, I pray that they would know the way they would love you and understand your love towards them like you and I love one another. I mean, what kind of love is that? Jesus and the Father loving each other, and that's the kind of love he wants us to understand with God? Like, this is love that has never had a beginning because he's never because he's not created and this has been going on for for centuries and centuries and centuries and it's this dance among the God the Father God the Son and the Holy Spirit and that's what we're supposed to experience and God's like yeah that's exactly right that's how i think and feel about you Pete Grigg the founder of the 24/7 prayer movement and the writer of a book called Dirty Glory says your power in prayer will flow from the certainty that the one who made you likes you. He's not scowling at you. He is on your side. Unless your mission and our acts of mercy, our intercession, petition, confession, and spiritual warfare begin and end in the knowledge of the Father's love, we will act and pray out of desperation, determination, and duty instead of revelation, expectation, and joy. What a beautiful shift and so valuable to know that that is God's predisposition for us. I would suggest that the, one of the primary obstacles to a deeper life of prayer with God is an inability to receive the love of God, to truly believe that this is the way that God looks at you, and not just to know about it, not just to read a scripture, but actually to know it, to feel it, to experience it, to live in it, and to live out of it. And the reason this is foundational in prayer is that if you think God's position towards you is the light when you go to ask Him for something, it kind of changes when it's, if it's, if it's maybe you feel like He's like, about time. Or finger wagging, you know, you've missed the last few days. But instead, oh, I've been waiting for you. Oh, I've been excited for you. Oh, I've been longing for this moment. Oh, I'm just so happy to be with you. Thanks for making the time. And so when you ask a father like that, oh yeah. In the parable of the prodigal son, the dad says something's one of my favorite little lines in scripture. He says to the older brother who's complaining, he says, everything I have is yours. 
Meaning, basically, just ask. That's the position and the posture of the Father towards us. In Numbers chapter 6, we find the priestly blessing that we oftentimes will read at the end of a gathering as a way to send everyone out, which says, the Lord bless you and keep you, and Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. We see His face a couple of times in those verses. And if we can understand his face as one that expresses his delight towards us, it's a, it's a smiling face, it's a shining face, it is a loving face, it is a I'm so happy to see you face. You ever, you ever one, any of those friends that like when they see you or you see them, it's like, hey, that's God. Times a million. A paraphrase of that particular verse might sound like, may you feel the joy of God's face shining on you because he is happy to be with you. So maybe the praying our Father, sometimes I just get stuck on the our, our Father. I don't get to the other stuff. I wonder if Jesus puts it in the beginning, obviously to frame it in relationship, but when we pray it, it's a reminder for us of how loved we are by the Father, how much delight he takes in us. This week, we have a weekly practice, and it is to pick a time to daily spend five minutes in silence with God. And during that time, imagine Him, imagine him delighted to be with you. Now, it's not that you, that's it. I, hopefully that leads into some requests and talking and listening and all of that. But this is going to help set the foundation for the relational before the functional. Now, really, this is a, I would say this is more like a yearly practice. In other words, I want you to set a time for this week. Pick a time. But really, I want you to pick a time that works best for you every day or most days so that this can become a practice, something that is built into the rhythm of our lives. Because there is no formation without repetition. And so this isn't just a, okay, great, I'll do this this week and I'll change to do something else next week. This is about us being with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and martyr during World War II, was talking about marriage at one point, and, and he says, he was, he was talking to a young couple, and he said to them, he said, your love has sustained you up to this point. Like the fluttery feelings and the, the desire for one another and the excitement for the wedding day, that has sustained you. But he says, starting today, that changes. It is not love that sustains your marriage, but from today forward, your marriage will sustain your love. And what's he saying? He's saying the fluttery feelings won't always be there. The, the ideas about, oh, we're going to get married are going to fade. But what he's saying is your love needs a container. It needs a container for the bad days, for the hard times for the times when you don't feel like loving one another. And marriage is the container that holds the love. That will include fluttery feelings, but also is going to include days that you're thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. And our relationship with God needs a container because there will be days that you might feel like praying and there might be other days when you're like driven to your knees, like you can't do anything but pray. But then there's all the other days. 
The days when desperation hasn't driven you to your knees or, or things are so good that you're thanking God. But maybe it's just the average ordinary things seem to be going pretty good days. Because if we let desperate times and fluttery feelings drive it, then it's going to be unsustainable. But if we can create a rhythm and build into that rhythm a desire to meet with and a longing to be with God, it can change everything. And it holds us, carries us. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, set a time. Create space. For me, it's the morning. After I get up, I, haven't, I don't look at my phone until after that time. I want to make sure that the first word and the first person I'm interacting with, besides Jossie, but, but outside, through, you know, we interact so much through that, is not there, but with God. So create that space. And I want you to resist the urge to evaluate. Like, is this working? Or what am I getting out of this? What is this doing for me? Because I have found in now years of praying and what I've learned over the last several years is that I've had a few moments where they're like fireworks and just unbelievable. But those are the rare exceptions. But I have had moments that actually are beautiful, but they're beautiful because they were stacked moments. In other words, I remember when I first started to sit in silence and imagine God delighting in me. And it wasn't like after the first day that I'm like, oh, wow, God delights in me. It actually was like, I think he delights in me because that's what I know. But then I did it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day for weeks and months. And I remember the day. I remember the day when it took the long journey from my head to my heart. It was like, mind blown. But it wasn't just that day. It was all the days that built up to that one day that then has fueled the ongoing days. If you're a skeptic in the room, you're like, I don't know. God's too far off. or I've tried to pray before. I have not experienced the joy that you're talking about. This is an open invitation to what cannot just be taught, but has to be experienced, discovered. I just want to encourage you. If I could plead with you, if I can challenge you, if I can dare you to go on the journey, to, to say, I'm just going to keep pressing in. I'm just going to keep leaning in. I'm just going to keep showing up. I'm just going to keep sitting. I'm just going to keep imagining. And, and, and maybe one day you'll find yourself like with a smile on your face because you're like, God delights in me and I, I'm delighting in him. I find myself sometimes sitting in silence and a big smile comes on my face and I think, if somebody watched me right now, they'd think I was weird. But it's just me, like back to God. His delight in me, cultivating my delight in him. If you're new to church today or maybe have, it's your first time in church in a long time and maybe this sounds amazing and, and maybe you're like, I don't know. Can I just invite you to take a step of faith? God longs to be with you. Maybe you've grown up around church but you're like, this isn't the type of God that I've understood. God longs to be with you. 
So if that's you here today, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, cross the line of faith and even simply, sincerely under your breath, say, Jesus, I give you my life. Because what we're saying is, I don't, I, I don't want to follow you. See, too often we're like, hey, God, um, I need you right now. Can you help? Because I, this is the direction I want my life to go in. We, we want to go our way, but we just want God to bless it. But this is really about us saying, God, I want to go your way. I want to follow you and do it your way. And if that's you here today, sincerely say that prayer. It's not the only prayer you need to pray. It's the beginning of an amazing journey and relationship with the God of the universe. 